You are listening to the Tom Eliff Podcast. Tom Eliff pastored for 42 years and was also the president of the International Mission Board and the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the founder of Living Word Publications. Now, here is Tom Eliff. Open your Bible to the 18th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. Every evening in starlight, seems like the Lord has impressed me with brand new message for each of our worship services. From the very beginning, several folks approached me and said, Pastor, there's one message in particular we'd like for you to preach. And I, uh, I'm a little bit leery when folks say that because I want to make sure that I'm hearing from the Lord. I preached a message a year and eight months ago behind this pulpit in the old building entitled How to Forgive. And I want to preach that message this morning. Look with me, if you will, please, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. And I want you, if you will, please, to read aloud with me, beginning with verse 32. Let's read it together. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desiredst me. Shouldst not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. Father in heaven, my prayer is that your Holy Spirit would move in power in this service this morning, and you would teach us how to forgive and show us that the real secret of forgiving is knowing that we have been forgiven by you of our sins. Now, Father, bless this choir as they minister to us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. People who, because of some lacerating event of the past, are struggling with how to live in the present. Some event that might seem to you to be rather insignificant, but which has left a permanent mark on their life. And their living is spent as a reaction to that event. Let me give you an illustration. Some time ago, I visited with a lady who said, I'm having such a struggle in my marriage. As we sat down there on a seminary campus, she poured out her heart and she said, Pastor, I want you to know, I love my husband and I love my family, but because of the way my father treated me when I was growing up, I'm having such a struggle properly responding to my children and to my husband. And she began to pour out a tale of abuse and neglect and horrible sexual perversion and she said, I came into marriage so scarred, so lacerated. She said, I was, I was afraid to tell my husband. She said, I didn't want him to look at me and, and think of me as someone who had been manhandled and abused in that fashion. But she said, it is making life so difficult for me. And I know her testimony could be the testimony of some here this morning. I was talking with a young man in high school who said, Brother Tom, I want to tell you something. It may seem rather funny to you, but he said it's not funny to me. He said, I have an obsession in regard to my clothing. And so far, I thought the only funny thing about that was that he was, that was shared with millions of other high school students. But he said, uh, no, you don't understand. 
He said, I, I can't leave the house without spending sometimes inordinate amount of time just looking at the way I look. He said, sometimes I'll be on my way out the door and I'll, I'll take a look at myself. And he said, I'll go back in and even if it means I'm going to be late to school, I'll change my wardrobe, wardrobe all over again. And he said, now I know lots of people do that. He said, but not like me. He said, I have an obsession with this. And he went on to say that it all, all began back in the third grade when some friends of his just made, I'm sure to them, it was a casual but rather critical comment about the way he looked. And he said, as a third grader, that hurt me so deeply, I determined that I was never, ever going to be seen by anybody unless I was dressed in a fashion that would impress them. And so he said, it's almost like that's the main thing on my mind. That is this obsession with the way I look. And I know I'm speaking to people here this morning who would say, I can vividly recall something that was said to me by a parent, by a teacher, by a friend, some event that occurred early in my life, and my life right now is in some fashion ordered because of the deep hurt that I can recall on that moment. There's some of you here, when you pillow your head at night, still can think of events that cause your emotions to surge, your adrenaline to flow. It can cause your blood pressure to rise and your thoughts go on an absolute roller coaster as you think about what you should have done and how you could have hurt in response and how deep the hurt was and what you'll do if you ever see that person. And although you are separated from that event by years and many miles, it could be that in some way the compass of your life has been set by that deep, deep hurt, that laceration of soul and spirit that occurred earlier in your life. Some of you perhaps can look back on events in your marriage life and you say, you know, I don't know that I'll ever get over that. I don't know that I can ever feel the same about our relationship again. How do you handle that? How can you forgive? And some of you have tried the little routine of saying, well, I can forgive, but I'm having trouble forgetting. And so does that mean that I have not forgiven? Or I have said I forgive you, but I can't hide the fact that my emotions are on a roller coaster. When I think of those events, have I really forgiven just because I have said I have forgiven? I talked to a missionary who said on one occasion, I want you to know that I am probably here on the mission field not because God has called me. Oh, I hope he has. But I'm probably here because someone earlier in my life said to me, why, our preacher doesn't care anything about missions. And he said, I determined from that moment on that I was going to prove, here was this lady, he said, I was going to prove to her that I cared about missions. And so he said, here it is. I'm overseas. I've got my family with me. I hope it's because God has brought me here. But he said, the thing that drives me is proving to that little lady who probably didn't even remember she made that statement, proving to her that I care about missions. I wonder how many people here this morning can look back to some event, some deep scar, some deep laceration of the Spirit and say, I'm having trouble today dealing with that. This morning I want to speak to you on this subject, how to forgive. How to forgive. Now, when God finds an area of a person's life, an area of life where an adjustment is needed, an area of life where maturity is needed, God immediately establishes an agenda to deal with it. 
And apparently God, looking into my heart some years ago, knew that I had a higher theology of morality than I did a theology of grace. And so God set in motion a chain of events to begin to school me in this area of how to forgive. And I'm sure he's not through with the schooling, but I want to share with you just a, a few lessons which I have learned along the way. Now, let me give you a little of the background. I come from a fine Christian heritage. I know many people say, I, I didn't, I came out of this background or that background, and I say to you, well, then why don't you be the first person in a long line of a, of a new family that has a fine Christian heritage and establishes Christian character? You be the first. If you didn't come from a family like that, you be the first. Well, somebody was the first way back in my family, generations ago, and they said, we are going to establish Christian principle in our home. My grandfather was a preacher. My father, a preacher. I have two brothers, and as you know, a brother-in-law, a preacher. I have some assorted uncles who are preachers, no aunts who are preachers, but some who write good sermons. And um, I have come from a, a family background that I have loved and appreciated very much. My father basically has been my hero all of my life. And you know, some years ago, God began dealing with my wife and I about going to the mission field. He established through a Bible promise that we were to go to Africa. And I remember driving over to this very city to share with my father and mother that God was calling us to the mission field. And that evening as I shared that, I remember the sense of affirmation that I got from my parents, from my mother especially, who said, I, you know, I've always wanted you to simply be obedient to God. And uh, God gave you to us, and we gave you back to God, and he's the one who's running the show in your life. But I will never forget something else that happened that evening. And I have permission to share this, and so I share it with a sense of reverence, and I want you to hear it carefully. At that moment, my father had been, in the past, had been a pastor for many years and then was working with the Baptist denomination in this city, a man who the year before had led over a thousand people to the Lord, a man who had been voted the outstanding uh, executive director of missions in the Southern Baptist Convention. My father had gone into what we didn't know at that time but was a deep spiritual and moral dementia. And he looked at my mother and he said to her, well, I guess I better just, you know, tell everything. I don't love you and I'm going to leave you. They've been married 43 years, an absolutely perfect marriage as far as anyone could tell. Many of you folks here know that, and they would sometimes do marriage conferences together. But I want to tell you something, and I say this just as a parenthetical statement. Men, it is daily bread. You never build up so many points with God that you can afford to quit reading the Bible, afford to quit praying, and just coast along on your pseudo-spirituality. It doesn't make any difference how spiritual you may have been. It is daily bread. It is where you are today in your walk with God. Young men, you remember that. Dads and moms, you remember that. Ladies, you remember that. You can't afford to coast. It is a battle and you need to stay in the Word of God. And you are what you are on your knees before God today, and that's all you are, literally all you are. My heart fell into my shoes when I heard that. I couldn't believe it. I know some of you come from broken homes. All of their children were grown up, but I can't imagine how it must hurt little children when parents divorce. I know that it hurts. I, I have a special sensitivity, a special place in my heart for little children who's, who come from broken homes because I know how much it hurt this big child. I was 38 at the time. I know how much it hurt me to hear that there was a problem in the home. For a year, my wife and I remained. We decided along with the rest of our family we were going to do everything we could to see that the family did not break apart. We stood together 
a year later at a family reunion. In days, in fact, in hours, we were going to be boarding the plane heading for Africa. My father put his head on my shoulder. He wept. He said, Tom, I'm sorry this happened. It won't happen anymore. I want you to know I'm glad to be home, and everything is all right. And I had a sense of joy in my heart and a sense of confidence. We got on the plane, flew off to New York to board a plane for overseas. I decided to call my parents once again. When I called, my mother answered the phone. I could tell when she answered, her heart was broken. And she said, Tommy, your daddy has left, and this time it's for good. And it was for good. I tell you, I cannot describe to you my feelings as we boarded that plane and flew over the ocean. My heart was broken, literally right down in my shoes. I cannot describe to you the feelings in my heart. I knew then that God was going to have to teach me how to forgive. I could sense a rising bitterness in my soul and a troubled heart, and I knew that I could not arrive in Africa and adequately perform the ministry that I had to perform if, as a matter of fact, I carried in my suitcase when I arrived and went through customs bitterness of heart because, you see, bitterness of any kind will ultimately defile a person, the Bible says. And so I began seeking from God a message about how to forgive. After we had been in Africa nine months, my wife and children were on their way to the northern part of Zimbabwe. I was down in South Africa at the time, and I received a phone call. Brother Ralph Spees was over visiting with us, and I received a phone call, and they said, your wife and children have been involved in a horrible automobile accident. And our oldest daughter, Beth, as a matter of fact, was critically injured, and that, that in fact, they said it seems that she may be at the very point of death. We don't know all the problems but you need to come quickly back to Zimbabwe and we need to make some arrangements. I flew to Harare. We made arrangements to fly her and, and uh, Jeannie up to Harare to the hospital and they were immediately at, uh, checked into the hospital. My wife at the time was injured as well and Beth seriously burned from her shoulder down to her knees with a crushed pelvis and, and uh, in intensive care having lost a lot of body fluids at that time and, and we just, just hanging there. And for several days, I just was in the hospital going from floor to floor and trying to see to the needs of my family. But then I got a call from the police and they said, we want you to come down to the town nearby where this accident occurred. And time does not permit me to tell you all the miracles that, that, that God performed to save my family alive. But let me just tell you this one event. As we walked in the police station, the inspector, the vehicle inspection department, the head of that division met me and he said, I want to show you something. We walked out on the lot and there was this crushed vehicle that had turned over three times. And he said, we have conclusive evidence that this was an act of sabotage. He said, here are the pictures, here are the sworn statements, uh, here is the evidence, I want to show you this. What do you want us to do about it? He said, I'll tell you, right before you say anything, there's not really anything we can do. Because of the guerrilla activity up and down those roads, he said, this just happens on occasion. And then he looked at me and he said, you ought to thank God for this accident. And I said, why? He said, because the whole background of this is that the men who did this wanted the car. They didn't plan for the car to end up in an accident. They just wanted your wife to stop and tend to that left front wheel. But when that car began to turn over and over, doesn't your wife remember someone in a car behind? And she remembered vividly the car. She remembered that there was a car behind her. And he said, you know, the truth of the matter is your family is probably alive because of the accident. But you see, in my heart still, I thought, this is so unfair. We've come over here, we're ministering to these people, and the very folks we want to minister to have somehow uh, brought such damage, such hurt to my family. As I left that police station and headed toward home, I was stopped at the same place where they had been stopped. 
And as my wife had been days earlier, I'd been asked at gunpoint to get out of the car. They began to sort through the belongings of my car, and I found a rising bitterness in my heart. I wanted to grab those soldiers. I wanted to beat their heads together and say, you know something? My wife and my daughter are up there in the hospital, and it's all because of you. And I drove on home, and I got on my knees, and I said, Dear God, you're going to have to teach me how to forgive. I can't survive unless you teach me how to forgive. In teaching me some of the lessons of forgiveness, God brought me to this passage in the 18th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Let me briefly share with you the background. Jesus is speaking a parable. He said there was a servant who owed a king an enormous amount of money. As a matter of fact, if you will compute it, it was between 580 and 800,000 pounds of precious metal. More money than this servant could have paid if he had lived three lifetimes. It was an absolutely unpayable debt. And so the king decided, since the servant could not pay it, that he was going to sell this man and sell this wife and sell the children so that payment would be made. But this servant fell down at the feet of this king and said, give me a little time and I will pay you. It was just stalling for time. No way he could ever pay him. But when he said this, the king's heart was broken and the king forgave him. Then this servant, the Bible says, the Lord in this parable is speaking, went out and found a fellow servant of his who owed him nothing more than pocket change. But instead of forgiving him, he grabbed him by the throat, he began to shake him, and he said, pay me what you owe me. And this servant said, look, I'll, just give me a little time and I will pay you. And he said, no, I won't let you do this. In fact, I'm going to put you in prison. And so he put his fellow servant in a debtor's prison. There were some others standing around who knew the, little, uh, the background of this event. And so they went back to the king and they said, king, you know that guy you forgave? He went out and wouldn't forgive a friend of his pocket change. And so the Bible says the king went out, gathered this man up, he was exceedingly angry with him. He delivered him over to the tormentors, and he said, this is going to happen to you. You're going to be in torment till you pay all the debt. Then Jesus concluded with these words, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Now, I want to speak about two issues this morning. First of all, forgiveness on the practical side. Secondly, forgiveness on the personal side. First, on the practical side. In other words, what does it mean to forgive? If you choose to forgive someone this morning, if you say, I am going to forgive that person, what does that mean? Forgiving someone simply is a deliberate decision, a singular decision of your will, a volitional decision by which you choose to consider a person no longer in debt to you. It is a singular decision deliberate, volitional decision by which you choose to consider a person no longer in debt to you. You say, what if that person never repents? What if that person never asks for forgiveness? Well, that'll have a lot to do with whether you and that person have fellowship, but it should have nothing to do with your forgiveness. For forgiveness is forgiveness. It's saying in advance, I choose to consider you no longer in debt to me. Now, I know what some of you are asking. You're asking this question. What if I say, though, I forgive you, but I can still remember it, and I still have all these emotions, and I still have these thoughts that race through my mind, and these emotions that surge with the adrenaline flow, even late at night, that person, that event can wake me up. How do I handle that? Let me give you a little background. The people who heard this parable would have understood this about forgiveness, especially a king's forgiveness. You see, when a king would forgive a man a debt, they would bring him into the courtroom, 
and they would sign documents. They would put the, uh, the man's name on this document, the king's name, the amount owed, the fact it was forgiven. The man would sign it, the king would sign it, and a court clerk, a, a representative of the court, would also affix his signature to that. The man was given a copy of that, and then a copy was kept for the records of the kingdom. Now, just suppose that uh, three months later, the king had some big project going on, and he needed 580,000 pounds of precious metal, and one of his advisors said, look, you remember that guy that was in here three months ago? Go for it. He's got the money. He owes you the money. He ought to give it to you. And so the king called that man in and said, look, give me the money. And the man would say, oh, no, wait a minute. You have forgiven me. The king would turn to the representative of the court and say, is that right? He would go back through the files, pull it out, and say, well, I'm sorry, king. It is absolutely right. And so the king would let him go. Maybe six months later, the king would have another project, and he would decide that he needed the money. He would call the man in. And he would say, give me what you owe me. And he would say, look, I've got it right here. It's, it's folded up, it's tattered, but look, I have for you this document. And the king would turn to the representative of the court. He would say, is that right? He would go back through the file. He would say, oh, yes, that's right. And the man would go free. Probably nine months later, one of his advisors said, why don't you go to that man for the money? And the king would say, don't bother me with that advice. I don't need to hear that from you. I already know from experience that man is a forgiven man. Now, here's what I'm saying. The fact that you choose to forgive a person does not mean that Satan will not come to you as the accuser of the brethren and tempt you to try that person's case again in the courtroom of your emotions. But when he gets you to do that, there you are, lying in bed late at night, and Satan says, why don't you retry that person's case? But you can go back through the file and say, no, wait a minute. On the 12th of July, 1987, in a worship service on Sunday morning in the First Southern Baptist Church, Dell City, Oklahoma, I made a deliberate, singular, volitional decision to forgive that person. And you've released that person. Maybe again, you are tempted to try that person's case in the courtroom of your emotions. And you go back through the file and say, no, wait a minute, I made a singular, deliberate choice. Don't you know that after a while, God will even deal with the emotional part of it? For when Satan comes to you the 10th time, the 12th time, the 15th time, you can say, I don't even need to try that again. I don't even need to think about that again. I know I made a decision to forgive that person. That is forgiveness on the practical side. But let's look for a moment at forgiveness on the personal side. What will it do, for instance, for the person whom you forgive? What will it do for that person? Well, it will remove you as a factor in that person's behavior from that moment on. That person can never say, well, I would go to God, but I have a friend who will not forgive me. That person can never lay his bad behavior, her bad behavior, off on you any longer. Now, listen. When you forgive someone, you are in effect placing that person's case in God's court. But if you refuse to forgive someone, if you said what this man did, what this woman did is too terrible, I will not forgive it. If you refuse to forgive it, what you are saying is this, God, I have a higher standard of justice than you do. I'm not going to turn this over to you because I'm afraid that you're not going to accomplish what I think needs to be accomplished in that person's life. You're not going to make it tough enough for them, and so I'm not giving you their case. When you forgive someone, you're saying, God, it's your business. It's between you and that person because that person, as far as I'm concerned, is a forgiven person. Has it ever occurred to you that the people you don't forgive get on better than you do? Isn't that aggravating? Somebody does you dirty and... Uh, 
you're upset about it and you say, okay, God, I'm waiting. You just blast them out of the water. Instead, you look around, a few weeks later, they're driving a better car. They live in a nicer house. They dress better than you do. Their family's happy. And nothing in your life is good. You may have lost your job. You lost your car. Everything's going bad. And you're saying, oh, wait a minute, God. It's supposed to work the other way around. I mean, you're supposed to give it to them right in the teeth. I'm one of your children. They did me dirty. Let them have it, God. God says, I can't let them have it. Why? You've not given their case to me just yet. You still got it because you think you have a higher standard of justice than I do. So when you forgive someone, you are turning that person over to God. You're saying, God, I trust you in your love and sovereign mercy to deal in a better fashion with them, a more precise, loving, gracious fashion than I could, but I rest my case. It is now yours. That's what it will do for the person whom you forgive. But what will it do for you? Thinking about forgiveness on the personal side, what will it do for you if you choose to forgive someone, let me suggest to you several things that'll do for you. And I believe there's some people here this morning who can go away absolutely freed from events of the past, people whose lives are ordered by events of the past. What will it do for you if you choose to forgive? Let's look at them. Number one, number one, it will set you free from your indebtedness. You say, wait a minute. Brother Tom, it's, it's that person who owes me money. I don't owe that person money. It's that person who owes me. Uh, they ought to call to me and ask me to forgive. They ought to give me the money. They ought to square things up with me. No, 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 wait a minute. When you don't forgive someone, isn't it true that you walk around all the time feeling like you owe them something? I owe him punching his lights out. I owe him his comeuppance. I've seen couples do this. You know, they're aloof. Husband comes walking in. He's been a little miffed about something the wife did. She says, what's the matter? He said, nothing. Oh, come on, sweetheart, nothing's the matter. No, there's not. Now, look, I know something's the problem. No, there's not. And what, you know what he's doing? He's trying to pay her with aloofness. He's trying to pay her with his brusqueness because, you see, he hasn't forgiven, and so he has a debt. He's got a discharge. When you choose to forgive, what you are saying is, I no longer have any debt. I owe that person nothing but to love and to good works. That's all I owe that person, is to love that person and to express good favor, good works to that person. It will release you from your debt. If you don't do it, you will walk around the rest of your life feeling that you carry a document in your heart that says, when I meet up with that person, I somehow have got to pay them back for what they did to me. All right? That's the first thing it'll do. It'll release you from your debt. Here's the second thing it will do. It will cast you on the resources of God. There is a sense in which forgiveness is the greatest act of faith that a Christian can express. Isn't that amazing? Now, why is that? Because, you see, when you don't forgive someone, what you're saying is, God, you don't hold the key to my joy. God, you don't hold the key to my success. It's not you, it's that person. You see, you can say all you want to. My God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But if you sit around here sullen, sober-faced, looking like you've had an inoculation with pickle juice because somebody has offended you, you're saying, God, you're not the secret of my happiness. That person holds the key to my happiness. Now, why could this man, this king, forgive this servant? Because, listen, the king didn't need the money. He had the money. He minted the money. He had all the money, you see. He didn't need, I mean, 580,000 pounds of precious metal with a drop in a bucket to the king. How is it that a person can be forgiven by another? 
when that other person has been forgiven by God. One of the reasons some of you cannot forgive people, you hold it in your heart, you don't know how to get out of it, get it out of your system, you have never, ever been born again. And as a person who does not have the infinite resources of God's forgiveness available to you as a born-again believer, you just believe you've got to get what you need from somebody else. Now, if you truly are a Christian, you have been forgiven more than you ever ought to think about having to forgive someone else. I don't care how dastardly, I don't care how terrible, I don't care how demeaning and hurtful that person's activities may, be, may have been. It is your sin along with everyone else that sent Jesus to the cross. He has forgiven given you more than you will ever have to forgive anyone else. And so you can reach into the treasure trove of the resources of forgiveness of God, those resources which are limitless, and say, I forgive. And so it casts you upon the resources of God. It says, I'm living by faith. Whatsoever is not a faith is sin. And so it casts you upon the resources of God. Here's the third thing it will do when you forgive. It will restore you to usefulness. It will restore you to usefulness. There's some people who are wondering, why am I not being used? I'm out here on a shelf. I've got all these abilities, all this education, all this talent, and I'm just on a shelf. I'm just on a shelf. Why am I not being used? Well, it could be that you are in a prison of unforgiveness. What did this king say to this man? He said, take that man, turn him over to the tormentors, put him in prison till he shall pay the debt. Now, a guy in prison is not very useful. As long as he's in prison, he's not very useful. In fact, he's a sponge on society. It's interesting, some guy steals a lady's purse and he's punished by the fact that that lady has to take care of him in prison the rest of her life. That's a funny system we have. But anyway, here, a guy in prison is useless. And a person who is in a prison of unforgiveness is useless, you see. And so it could be that you're wondering, how do I get used of God again? How can I get back into the business of, of letting my life be a testimony to others? It could be. God would speak to your heart tonight and say, I can't use you because you will not exhibit the one characteristic which is most, most evident in my own nature, and that is the quality of forgiving. And how can I turn you loose on society when you won't do the one thing I did even on the cross, and that is forgive someone, forgive someone. And so it will restore you to usefulness and fellowship with God. Notice what the Lord says, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother, their trespasses. Let me suggest to you another thing it will do for you when you forgive. It will remove you from your tormentors. He turned him over to the tormentors. A person who doesn't forgive lives in torment. Lives in torment. I mean, he can make his heart beat fast, his blood pressure go up. I mean, a person who won't forgive lives in torment. It can even have physical symptoms. Not always, but it can have physical symptoms. A lady came to me one time. She was a missionary. She and her husband had come back to the States. And she was dying. Now, I'm no physician. I don't make any claims to be a physician. This lady was dying of a disease called aplastic anemia. I don't know much about it, except she just said, I'm not making blood. She said, Brother Tom, if God says anything to you about this, tell me. She said, I'm back here to watch my son play out his basketball career in high school, then I know I'm going to die. She could hardly walk across the floor without passing out. Went several times a week for transfusion. She was making no blood. They said, you're going to die. One morning as I was reading the Scripture, it doesn't always happen this way, but as I was reading the Scripture, God showed me a verse of Scripture. I called her, asked if she and her husband would come and visit me. And there in the office, I said to her, has anything happened to you in your past, maybe on the mission field that lacerated you, that hurt you? And it was like I pulled two corks out of her eyes. She began to weep profusely. 
And she began to pour out a tale. It was a horrible tale of abuse. And my heart was broken for her, and she said, I've just never been able to forgive that. I talked to her about forgiveness. And I said, would you be willing right here on your knees to get down and ask the Lord to give you a spirit to forgive and choose to forgive those people? And she knelt, and she poured out her heart, and she said, I choose to forgive. You know what happened? I can't explain this. Only God can explain it, but that lady was healed. I mean, that lady was healed. She has been back on the mission field now for almost 12 years. The doctors would say, uh, you know, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. What was the verse that I showed her? Very simple verse. I don't profess to know everything about it. She was a nurse. I said, this morning as I was reading in Proverbs, I saw this verse. It says, bitterness dries the bones. I said, I don't know all that that means, but I do know something about the bone marrow and the fact that your blood sort of is manufactured there. And she says, you're absolutely right, Brother Tom. I said, the Bible says bitterness dries the bones. Now, a person who will not forgive is a person who lives in torment. You cannot know the damage you're doing yourself and to others. You cannot know that. When you get some terminal disease, you got it. But when you get bitterness, you splash it on everybody else. It is as contagious as AIDS. I mean, you give it to everybody around you. You just smear them with your unforgiveness, with your bitter spirit. One other thing it will do for you if you forgive, it will remove from you the defiling root of bitterness. Now listen, in the 12th chapter of Hebrews, we are told that a root of bitterness springing up will defile us. You plant a tree in bitter soil, and the fruit of that tree is going to be bitter. Now, it doesn't make any difference where the fruit hangs on that limb. It's going to be bitter if the soil is bitter. You can take that, if it's an apple, you can take it out 10 feet. You can take it out 20 feet. Well, maybe you might even be able to get it out there 25 feet or 30 feet. But that fruit is going to be bitter if it is rooted in bitterness. Now, here's what this scripture means. You root your life in bitterness. You nurture your soul in bitterness. You just go, every day go to that well of bitterness and mull over that event and those horrible things that happened and what you ought to have done and how you could have done it. Why did they do that? And whether God loved you, you just go to that well of bitterness every day and the fruit of your life, the product of your life is going to be bitter. And you can move it out there. You can go out of town, but it'll still be bitter. You can go out of state, but it'll still be bitter. You can separate yourself by 10 years and 5,000 miles, but the fruit of your life will be bitter because you are rooted in bitterness. And you don't need a change of geography externally. You need a change of condition in your heart, lest a root of bitterness springing up will defile you. Now, quickly, let me just tell you the end of this event with my mother and father. We came back from Africa. Not long after we came back from Africa, some years ago, we got the word that my mother had Alzheimer's. In fact, she was diagnosed right there in Denver. She had come up to visit with us, and the doctor said she has Alzheimer's. And you know, because so much has been written about uh, this whole issue of Alzheimer's, you know all the effects of that uh, disease which seems to be affecting so many people. And he said, here's what you can expect. And we began to read the books. And sure enough, it just began to happen to her. As the book said, all the disorientation, all the dementia, all the physical symptoms. And I kept saying to God, this is so unfair. This is so wrong for it to happen this way. She never hurt anybody. She was the one who was hurt. And I cried out to God. I said, how could this be? This just seems wrong the way this is happening. A year passed and... In July, two years ago now, in July, well, I guess three years ago now, I got a phone call from my brother down in Norman. He said, Tom, he said, Mother's had a massive brain hemorrhage. 
and she's lying at the point of death. I flew from Denver to Norman. We gathered there at the hospital bed. The doctor said, I'm going to be honest with you. We're talking about hours. She's probably going to live hours, maybe days, but certainly not weeks. And you could literally, you'd have to know my mother, the godly lady of prayer that she was. You could literally physically, even though she was in a coma, just see her dig in when he said that. A day passed, and two days passed, and three days passed. She lay there like a vegetable. A week passed, a second week passed, and she was still alive. No motion, no movement, no talking, just right there on that bed, but still alive. At the end of two weeks, she stirred, and she said three words. She said, want, want, want. And, and, and we said, Mother, what do you want? I mean, do you want your pillow fluff? Do you want a height? We were astounded that she would even say anything. And we went down a list of, pe uh, of things that she might want, and then a list of people she might want. And finally, someone said, you want to see Dad? He'd been two and a half years since they'd even talked. And she started again, and she said, at the name of our Father, she said these three words, forgive, forgive, forgive. We said, Mother, we know that you've forgiven him. You've said it. You've written it. You know that we've forgiven him. We've said it. We've written it. She just lapsed into a coma. The next morning as we gathered, we knew she was going to die any minute. The phone rang. It was my father. First time we'd heard from him, two and a half years. He said, Tommy, I need to talk to mother. I said, Dad, mother's about to die. We're here, in fact, because we know she's going to die today. I said, I'll tell you what I will do. I'll put the phone up to her ear. And when I did that, he began to speak. Her eyes opened. Tears began to come down her cheeks. And the, the awesome restorative power of reconciliation, she began to talk to him. She said, why, of course I forgive you. Of course I forgive you. When the phone was hung up for 24 hours, she was just lucid. She said, isn't that wonderful dad calling? I've got to lead more people to Jesus. Isn't, isn't this wonderful? And then she lapsed into a coma. I thought about that little poem that said, he drew a circle that shut me out. Daunted rebel, a thing to flout, but love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that shut him in. For five more weeks she lived. Dad was calling. Then one day he said, what, what do you think she's waiting for? And I said, I don't know, maybe you. And the next day he was in the room, and for the first time, all of us would gather together. We prayed, we read the Bible, we, we sang together there at my mother's bedside, and within a few days she had died. But I will never forget those words of hers, forgive, forgive, forgive. And you'd better never forget the word of our Lord, forgive, forgive, forgive. Father in heaven, my prayer is this morning you would literally set people free. And as we come to this invitation time, oh, Holy Spirit, move in power in our midst. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed all over this auditorium. Don't do anything that would distract anyone. In the balcony, this lower floor, off to the side, in the choir, this is invitation time. I wonder this morning how many of you would say, you know, I know why I'm having trouble forgiving. Brother Tom, I, I think I'm having trouble forgiving because I'm not sure that my sins have been forgiven by God. I just can't say beyond any shadow of a doubt my sins have been forgiven by God. I, I would love to know that. I'd love to have that settled as a teenager, as an adult, as a child, to know that my sins, 100% of them, were forgiven by God. And if I died, I'd go to heaven. If that would be your prayer, I certainly wouldn't call your name. I, I, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't embarrass you, but just so that I could pray for you. If you'd say this morning, I know why I struggle with this, because I'm not sure that my sins have ever been forgiven 100% by God. Would you just raise your hand way up? Just raise them up and put them down. Put them down. God bless you as you do. Young people, raise them up high. I'm not sure my sins have been forgiven. Amen. 
Amen. Over here in the center section, raise him up high. I'm not sure that I've got it settled, that my sins are forgiven. Raise him up high, quickly. Yes, God bless you. God bless you. Way back there, I see you. Sir, any others? Raise your hand up high. I'm not sure my sins have been forgiven. Over here to your right, anyone? Anyone? Raise your hand up. I'm not sure my sins have been forgiven by God. Yes, I see. Way back there at the back. Anyone else? God bless you. Yes, sir. Over here to the side in these galleries. I'm not sure my sins have been forgiven. I don't know 100% if God's forgiven my sin. Up in the balcony, I want to see. Raise them up high. I'm not sure I've settled it, that my sins have been forgiven. Anyone in the choir? I don't have that settled. I'm not sure my sins have been forgiven by God. Over here in this gallery to my right, anyone? Raise your hand up. I'm not sure my sins have been forgiven. All right, let me look just once more. Anyone else? Quickly, before I pray for you, raise your hand. I haven't got it settled as a teenager. I haven't got it settled as an adult. I'm not sure that my sins, 100% of them, are forgiven by God, and that if I died, I'd go to heaven. Would you raise your hand? Anyone else? Quickly, before I pray. All right, Father in heaven, I just want to pray for these who have raised their hand and said, you know, there's, there's an uncertainty in my life. And part of that uncertainty is that I don't know beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus lives in my heart, that I'd go to heaven if I died. I'm not sure my sins are forgiven. Oh, Father, give these people courage. Bless them, Heavenly Father, with courage and truthfulness and faith to believe right now. Now, there's another group I want to speak to this morning. I wonder how many of you would say this morning, there's an issue in my life which I, I need to make the choice to forgive. And I can look back, when you talk about forgiveness, I could think of it. I need to make the choice to forgive. How many of you would say that this morning with the uplifted hand? Quickly, just put it up and down. Oh, dozens. Way up, way up. Hold them high. Hold them high. All right, over in the gallery. I need to make the choice to forgive. I know what it is. I could think of it. Up in the balcony. Raise up your hand quickly. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Over here to my right. Anyone? Teenagers. Yes, sir. God bless you. Yes. Yes, in the choir. There's a choice I need to make to forgive. Raise your hand quickly. Anyone? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. All right, in the orchestra pit. I need to make the choice. Anybody down in the orchestra pit here? There's a choice I need to make to forgive. All right? Father in heaven, I want to pray for these who raise their hand and said, I need to nail that down. I need to make that singular, deliberate, volitional choice. I need to be set free by forgiving. Father, I pray you'd give them boldness. Now, there are others of you who need to make other decisions, families here that you need to unite with our church, singles, young people, others who need to come to make other decisions. You know what they are. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. In a few moments, when we stand, I'm going to ask every one of you who raised your hand. Some of you are saying, I don't have God's forgiveness of my sin in my life. I don't know if I died, I'd go to heaven. Others of you are saying, there's a specific event in my life, and I need to nail it down this morning, make a singular, deliberate, volitional decision, for I realize what the Scripture says about how important it is for me to forgive. Others of you have other decisions. I want to encourage you, the moment we stand, to make your way to the aisle, make your way forward. Don't stop off at these prayer rails because I want to pray with you. Come and stand right here at this front altar, right in front of these steps. Come and stand. We want to give you some information, but I want to pray with you, specifically with those who are saying, I need to forgive. I have something in my life and a person or an event, and I need to look back at that and forgive it. Father in heaven, give courage and boldness. Now at this invitation time, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. The choir is going to begin singing. That's it. You just step up in the balcony. Just come on right now. Either side, right down here to the front. And stand right here. I am.